0: you're listening listening to hold that thought
1: from arts and sciences at washington university in st louis thanks for listening to hold that thought this season one of our focus topics is attraction and no i don't just mean romantic or sexual attraction though that is part of what we're going to be talking about today, at least from a non-human point of view. In the series, we'll be hearing from a psychologist, a chemist, and a writer, for example. But to kick off the series, today we'll be learning about the biology of attraction from Yehuda Ben-Shahar. Dr. Ben-Shahar is an assistant professor of biology here at Washington University in St. Louis. One of his research areas focuses on the genetic basis for animal behavior. Now, if we take a step back and think about animal behaviors, whether those of a human or a fruit fly, many of the things we do are in response to our senses. Touch, taste, sight, sound, smell. And if you take a step back again, these responses are often linked to attraction.
0: I think every time you respond to a specific sensory cue, if it's favorable, often you're attracted to it. It could be food, it could be an mate. It could be a warmer or colder spot. In biology, we we can assign positive and negative values for everything. So you can have sort of negative attraction as well, which means you're trying to get away from a specific interaction. And sort of from a biological point of view, these are equally important.
1: So the concept of attraction can apply to a wide range of animal behaviors. But in the research we'll be hearing about today, Dr. Ben-Shahar narrows in on a few specific areas.
0: One thing we're interested in is to understand two aspects of of sexual attraction. So we're trying to understand how individual animals make the decision of who to court, when to court. And the other is the difference between males and females during that courtship.
1: We're not talking about all animals here. In Ben-Shahar's lab, he studies Drosophila melanogaster, better known as fruit flies. So to take the attraction theme to another level, I asked Ben-Shahar what drew him to studying these tiny animals in particular.
0: The reason why I find flies attractive is that they're an excellent model to understand how genes affect these kind of traits. I mean, this was probably one of the first organisms that people actually showed that genes can be studied in the context of behavior. Still, some people argue that Behavior is sort of outside the realms of classic genetics. It's easier to see the effects of environment on behavior than to see effects of genetics on behavior. But most, most geneticists and most people who work nowadays, I mean, that's not a, a real paradox or an issue. I mean, it's, it's very clear to all of us that genes affect behavior.
1: So what exactly makes Drosophila such a good tool for understanding how genetics relate to behavior?
0: It's very easy to manipulate their genome. We can stop genes from doing what they're doing. We can induce genes to do what they're doing when they're not supposed to. We can take things out, put things in. We can put fluorescent proteins that will show us where specific neurons are. And so we have all these different tools to make good mechanistic connections between gene function, where these genes are functioning, meaning what neurons, in in our case, because we're interested in specific neural circuits, and how they're different, for example, between males and females.
1: At least in fruit flies, the behavioral differences between males and females are very clear.
0: During evolution, basically, the ability to produce sexual behavior evolved to be sort of hardwired. For example, males, we know, they don't need to learn how to behave like a male. It's very what we call innate. You can take a male that has never seen another fly in their lives, you can grow them in isolation, and you put them with a female, and right away they'll know exactly what to do.
1: What to do, in this case, is courtship behavior, which I was interested to learn actually includes a male fruit fly singing to its potential mate. In his research, Ben-Shahar asked questions about what prompts male fruit flies to begin these behaviors, and also what might inhibit them from mating.
0: How do they know that it's the right species, for example? What kind of cues are they using? It's very clear that, for example, in our case, chemicals are very, very important. But we also know that vision is very important. For example, I have one of my students, Katie Zeal. Part of what she's doing is to try to understand what kind of sensory signals the male melanogaster is using to make a final decision whether they are going to try to mate a specific female. And she's been actually taking females from different species and see how melanogaster males will respond to these. And actually we found there's one species it's called Drosophila virilis. They're actually very big in the Drosophila world. They're probably three times the size of melanogaster, which are these little tiny flies. And so if you just let the males see these these females, they have no interest in them.
1: But even with fruit flies, interesting things happen in the dark.
0: It was kind of funny when she turned off the light. They found these females as attractive as their own species. And that suggested to us that clearly vision in this specific case sort of inhibiting them from, from being attracted to that female. You take the vision away and now they're using anything else that is at their disposal. So probably they're using some chemical cues. And by the way, they use both smell and taste. They actually go and hug the females and they touch them. And they use their legs, actually, as a sensory organ. The males are, you know, they're pretty promiscuous, and at least in melanogaster. They they always go after anything that looks remotely a possibility. But then usually, you know, if there's light on or if they get all their sensory inputs in, they very fast, they stop because they realize that's not going to go anywhere.
1: Ben-Shahar isn't kidding about Drosophila being promiscuous. He told us that before receiving other sensory inputs, male fruit flies will even try to court tiny beads that are sort of the right size and shape to resemble a female fly. But in the case of a male fruit fly approaching a female of a different species, like in the experiment he just described, the reason it's not going anywhere is that the female fruit flies have behaviors of their own during this courtship process.
0: If she's not interested, she'll kick him. Basically.
1: A minute ago, Dr. Ben Shahar mentioned that when Drosophila aren't using their legs to kick unwanted suitors, the legs act as sensory organs. And some of his research deals specifically with how the fruit flies use these four legs during courtship.
0: So one area we kind of focus on is the is that part when the male goes to the female and touch her and gets the they get this what we call contact pheromone information. And we think that that's actually very, very important for Getting the male really going strong after the female. So if we so we identified a group of neurons in the forelegs of males, we think that these neurons are specifically tuned to these kind of signals, those contact pheromones. So, for example, if we block these neurons from functioning normally, we can see that they can find the females almost as well as wild-type animals. But they just don't get excited. It takes them much longer to really start singing and do all the things that a wild-type male will do in seconds. It takes minutes, sometimes up to 10 minutes before they ever show anything. So they're really lousy at that.
1: So remember, Ben-Shahar looks at both the genetics of behavior and at how males and females differ. And it turns out that these neurons in the four legs of Drosophila are one of the areas where these differences are very clear.
0: If you look at these neurons, they are in males and females, but what we found is that in in males, the neurons from both legs, they kind of, they go back to the nervous system, and then there's the midline of the body. When they come in, they actually cross the midline. So, you know, a lot of neurons do that, but when we looked in the females, exactly the same neurons, we saw that they come in, and then they stop. So there was a very, very clear, robust difference between males and females of how these neurons are sort of wired. So that's another thing, so now we're trying to understand, okay, what, why are they wired differently in f- males and females? What kind of genetic factors determine these neurons to be wired as we see in the male versus what we see in the female? And also, what's the significance of that? And there are all kind of different hypotheses that we're trying to study now uh, with various tools to try and understand how this might contribute to how males and females respond differently, maybe to the same types of pheromones, for example. Because we know that a lot of pheromones might elicit a specific type of behavior in the male and something else in the female. So it's pretty exciting to us.
1: But the experiments dealing with neurons and forelegs don't stop there. This part gets even more interesting.
0: Recently we did some cool experiments where we use genetic manipulations to actually make these neurons think that they are female neurons, even though they're actually in the male. So you sort of create a male that has just one population of neurons that develop as they were in a female, basically. And what we found in in those males is that they actually were fine courting females, but they suddenly started lacking males. So males usually don't court males but these males will court males, but then we gave them a choice between male and female, and they still prefer female. So then, so, so this is just an example of how we can start doing the all kinds of manipulations and start to understand how they make these decisions. So, so the way, for example, one way to interpret these data is to say, well, maybe they're missing some sort of an inhibitory signal from the male. So if there's only male there, they go, you know, after the default, and they'll go after these males. But if you actually give them a female, there's still something attractive in the female. So then they weigh, okay, I have a male and I have a female. I am still go- I still prefer to go after a female.
1: As fascinating as these results are, Ben-Shahar is quick to point out that flies and humans are very different. And these experiments have nothing to do with human attraction or sexuality.
0: And, and it's not that you do these kind of studies and think that there are any implications to, to human biology. And that's something I always try to make sure that people don't get confused. I mean, there's nothing truly analogous in these behaviors that represent anything related to human sexuality. We just use it as a model to understand how they do it, what kind of neurons, what kind of pheromones, what are, what are the receptors, what are the actual proteins that detect these molecules, why these receptors are different in different species, how are these kind of differences affect males' and females' decisions to say yes or no during sexual interactions.
1: Many thanks to Dr. Yehuda Ben-Shahar for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to his faculty page on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsi.wustl.edu. There you can also find more podcasts from this season and our archives. Thanks for
0: listening. Thank you.